0: Welcome to season three of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, eSports 101, Building a Business. Over the past year, we've talked with many eSports professionals around the world. Our audience knows how to play games, and now they're eager to level up their skills in the business arena. This season aims to equip every eSports entrepreneur with practical and useful knowledge to achieve success. Think of it as a mini course, eSports 101. And
1: now your host... Tom Leonard I'm Tom Leonard. I'm the host of the Gamers Change Lives podcast where we talk about how eSports can create jobs all over the world. play games, create jobs, change lives. In season one, we talked about jobs. In season two we called it follow the money. We talked about sponsorship, we talked about investment we talked about ways to raise money because it takes money to create jobs. Now, in season three we're talking to uh, people all over the world about more business related, uh topics we call it esports 101 and today we are really lucky to have justin jacobson he's an entertainment esports and video game attorney welcome
0: justin hey so happy to be here thanks for having me so where are you speaking to us from um so i'm here in the new york city area so up here in northeast so have you uh have you always lived in new york yep i'm from here originally from long island and kind of grew up and went to college in dc and then came back for law school and you know stayed around since so what um, what, what made you go into law? Um, I've kind of always been involved in the you know entertainment and music world from a you know a business kind of philosophy, and always felt like having you know legal knowledge and this you know set of skills was going to be valuable. I, I didn't really know where I was going to land on the spectrum, but you know it kind of seemed like it was a natural fit for you know using the legal knowledge or also being able to interact with people and help them grow and advise them. And, you know, seems to be a role that I kind of fit in nicely. Yeah.
1: No, that's good. Like I, uh, I was mentioning earlier this. I always like talking to attorneys because, uh, I, I mean, I got my baptism with the entertainment attorneys over here at Warner brothers. And, and one of the things that I figured out my, one of my core competencies was to wor- be able to work with the legal department. Cause not everyone else could do it. Um, or enjoyed doing it. But, um, but it, to me, that was, um, fascinating side because so much in entertainment is uh, is rooted in in law so which i'm not telling you something you don't know
0: <laughs> yeah i agree industrially you know that's kind of the thing It's all based on intellectual property and that's kind of you know the law that i really kind of you know specialize in so it really kind of lends itself to all these entertainment verticals
1: great great and one of the things i'll, I'll give the disclaimer here so you don't have to it's like Nothing that we say here is legal advice. It's like we're talking to, to Justin. We've talked to other attorneys in the past. And if nothing else, we're just giving you an idea, giving you the, in the audience, an idea that, that you need legal advice if you're doing things. And so mm-hmm. while this is not legal advice, it may give you some guidelines and some things to think about when you go out there and you need legal advice yourself. So, um, so what brought you into esports
0: in particular? in
1: in video gaming
0: yeah so i've been a lifelong gamer always kind of you know playing video games in some fashion from nintendo to sega to n64 was a big starcraft and starcraft 2 guy now you know play a lot of mobile games you know marvel snap is probably my you know obsession of these days and you know i kind of always was part of what i was doing as i mentioned i was always involved in the entertainment world and i knew that you know, eSports and Starcraft was really, you know, large in like South Korea and in Asia. But it wasn't until about, you know, seven, eight years ago that I really kind of noticed what was going on here in North America and in the US and how it was really kind of growing to this level of, you know, people are making thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars playing video games. Like that's a real thing. So I kind of began to, you know, explore the, industry a little bit, see what kind of other professionals and attorneys really were involved in and were servicing this kind of talent, the businesses, all the people involved in this ecosystem and really kind of noticed a similarity within them, what was a little different than kind of my background and my path. So I kind of just jumped into it and just started to, you know, network and connect with people and start working with different agents on behalf of their talent and slowly started to you know, kind of build my, you know, network and started working with players directly and teams and coaches and just kind of been doing that ever since. So who's your typical client? I would say I definitely lean a lot more on the talent side. So whether it's, you know, musician, an athlete, a gamer, a streamer, coach, or you know, but I also help, you know, managers and agents and companies and teams of people that are kind of working on behalf of talent from the other side. So, Definitely, am able to kind of work and see from both sides because I think that's always important when you're trying to do anything, especially when trying to negotiate. Which again is, you know, a lot of the core competencies I do with contract negotiation is to be a good negotiator. You kind of have to see other people's points of view and understand what's important to them and what they want to get out of the deal. You know, there's always something that's a little bit more important to someone than maybe it is to you, and sometimes when you identify that, that can be beneficial. So I think understanding the way both sides of the coin work gives you insight when you're working with you know a talent or saying, "Okay, well, as a team, these are the certain things you need to be able to deliver. So if they're going to give you more money, then you need to give them other things that are valuable in addition to ask for more money, because you want more money, obviously. But if you're like, "Oh, well, I'll do an extra post or a couple extra hours or this that, or that," that justifies your ass, because at the end of the day, I understand that the team wants you to do more promotional stuff. They want you to help them grow. That's part of the rub. They need you to grow. So I think understanding both sides lets you be a more efficient negotiator. When you're talking about, let's say esports
1: streamers, esports talent out there, and then you're talking about musicians. Yeah. I've been uh, on a kind of a side project. Um, been involved with some musicians here in the LA area and I've just been so amazed what how what a friendly and um um, open um industry that is here in LA could you describe a little bit about the differences that you have seen between let's say esports talent and maybe musicians or other entertainment talent that you've worked with maybe similarities and some differences
0: yeah I mean I think the biggest similarity why was really a nice transition for me to expand into it and now I kind of worked on the intersection of you know entertainment, sports, and music, and the gaming stuff, where there's just a lot of similarities in the legal principles, the trademark protections, the copyrights, the licenses, the way world teas and you know name, image, and likeness, and just the way a lot of the business mechanics are structured. So, you know, if you're a, a you know a big YouTuber, you're licensing music, you're getting product placements, you're working with brands, you're doing deliverables like. Same things as if you're a musician who's getting sponsored for a concert, or you know there's just a lot of similarities in what you're doing. I think the biggest difference though is kind of the understanding of the need for attorneys, manager agents, you know these professionals beyond yourself because in the sports world, the music world it's kind of part of the folklore of you get an agent, you get a manager this you know like there's these you know there's a lot more t v pop culture that kind of references that ankle so it's like you know if you're going to be join the nfl you need to get an agent and you don't know you might not know what that means but you know that early enough on when you're seven eight whatever years old that it's kind of part of the conversation where obviously you know a lot of these esports and gamers it's, it's just a shorter span where it's like you know this thing just got hyper professionalized pretty recently so it's just really a lack of understanding of the value of of where any of these other established professionals can do it. But the reason it exists in all these other talent entertainment worlds is because there's a need for it and there is a value. And it's, you know, that I think is the biggest difference. is not really understanding the need or the value that a professional can bring to your, you know, business operation. Because, you know, you don't think about streaming as a business operation, but you're making six, seven figures. Like, that's a pretty successful business. Yes, it is. Yes. So, how do
1: you how do you work with parents with with talent? Because because like you're, you're describing, some some of the clients are going to be underage, under legal age. And so, how do you work with
0: parents? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I definitely have some players that are you know 16, 17 years years old or younger, and you have to have them involved in all the conversations. A lot of the conversation is really kind of more directed at them, so that they really understand what the contract means and what it all actually you know because. Obviously, they have to sign off on it. They're the legal guardian. So everything kind of goes through them. So you want them to be the most comfortable with the agreement. Yeah, the, you know, the player, the talent, they need to understand what's going on. And, you know, they're important to be involved in the conversation. But most 16 year olds just want to get paid to play the video game. Like, like they're not worried as much about the right of first refusal and what that date starts at. And, you know, what it's so, but so really the you know, the parents are really worried a little bit more about that and being able to speak to them while also being able to involve, you know, the child, you know, makes a lot of sense, you know, do you but you ultima- mm-hmm. So do you find that parents are pretty up to speed on what esports is or are, is, is it quite a learning curve? I mean, I think it's, you know, hit or miss really. I think there are some parents that are really like, you know, they're getting it. They're really supportive of it. And then other ones are like, they just don't, they're like, what do you mean? Like this team is going to pay him thousands of dollars to play this video game that he's been playing at our house, like in the basement for the last three years. Like they, but it's like, yeah, like this is the thing. Like this is money. This is a real company. Like they're getting, some of these players are getting, you know, they're paying for their rent four hundred one, like health insurance. Like they're like employees, especially in, you know, Germany and California based entities, they're employees that are W2. And, you know, this is real. So, you definitely have a mix of parents that are kind of a little bit more understanding and ones that are just don't get it. But then when you start seeing the numbers, it's like, can't really argue with it. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. Because somebody, some of the people we've talked to around the world, it's like, you know, part of the conversation was getting parents to understand that, hey, this, this could be um, a real business. And, um, and yeah, just like you say, when the money starts coming in, it's like, oh, okay. Now I understand it more than before. So, um, I want to talk a little bit about maybe some definitions here of the different kinds of law, because one of the things you're practicing in a few different areas. And one of the things I thought would be interesting, maybe for the audience, to understand a little bit more about what the distinctions are. So, when you talk about entertainment law, what is entertainment
0: law? Yeah. So, you know, to me, the entertainment business, you're talking about music and movies and TV and, you know, literature and, you know, books and Broadway, like you know, the more traditional entertainment properties, and you know, then the esports and video gaming. You know, esports is you know, competitive video gaming. I think that's like the purest definition of what esports is. And then the gaming is more of you know, the all-encompassing streamers, content creators, people that maybe gaming or gaming lifestyle, like you know, the geek sheet culture that they call it, is kind of encompassed in their creativity and their content they put out. So it really gives you pretty much anyone that i kind of you know call an influencer or a content creator it's not necessarily the content of what you're doing it could be music it could be you know 3d animation but you're someone that's creative and then as you mentioned has these legal needs so what what um how would you describe intellectual property law so yeah so you know these different verticals there's a bunch of different legal disciplines that are kind of under them, so intellectual property law really is kind of like copyrights, trademarks, and patents. but for most of my purposes, it's more focused on copyrights and trademarks, so you know the protections of names and company logos and you know then specific works, you know audio works, sound recordings, all these you know books et cetera
1: so do streamers work with uh with publishers? yeah they're definitely getting the rights to do what it is that they're doing
0: yeah there's definitely relationships with game publishers working directly with you know streamers and content creators some of them are even integrated in the game as you know playable skins where they're actually earning income from that stuff so you know there's definitely a lot of integrations obviously depending on the level of the creator and you know what they're kind of doing what games they play
1: so for, for the, um, the content creator, the streamer, let's say that's out there or someone else that's playing, playing games as part of, part of a team. What are the kinds of things that they should be thinking of from a legal standpoint that they probably don't?
0: I mean, I think the biggest thing, and I, you know, spoke with, you know, a CPA earlier today. It's like understanding the business structure of the economics of this. So if you're winning prize money, you're getting sponsorship you're, you know, getting subs or whatever advertising, whatever you're getting from any of these platforms, you're getting a lot of money and it's all on the books. And if you don't understand how to properly pay taxes on this, and, you know, usually you're probably making a substantial amount of money and your expenses really aren't that high to offset a lot of it. So you're going to end up being taxed on a lot of it. And if you don't understand how to, you know, maximize your, you know, your value and get, you know, the most for it, you're going to be paying way more than you probably should. And I think understanding where, you know, business entities like LLCs and corporations come into play, how you kind of structure your taxes and what kind of things are recuperable expenses, like that to me is like a huge thing because it's literally costing you money by not doing it right. Like it's literally like I've had kids that are like, oh, I made this six figures playing Fortnite and like half the check evaporated. And it's like, yep like you know if you would have done some things properly you might have saved or recouped a bunch of money that you spent on the hotel for the event and the food for the event and if you bought a new microphone or a new head like you know you could have bought all new everything for it so So, do you do do you do taxes as well i don't necessarily you know do prepare the tax returns it's definitely more you know connecting them you know with people that do that but helping them more of the structuring of the business. So forming the entity, if they're, you know, going to receive investment or any of that stuff, helping them with, you know, those kind of documentation. What kind of entities do you usually form for people? Um, It depends, you know, I think it really depends on what state they're located in and what they're kind of, you know, when their budgets are like, how much money they're making. And that's usually where you kind of consult with an encounter CPA to see what makes sense. You know, if you're in a state like Texas or Florida, just because of, you know, It might make sense because you don't have state income tax. If you're already a resident there, you might not need a different state. You know, obviously, depending on if you're trying to go public with your company, receive, you know, that different states might have different laws and regulations. But, you know, most people that are trying to run a small business, it's just really kind of them operating and like it's probably most cost efficient where you live, depending, you know, some states might be higher than others the formation fees might be you know larger than certain ones new york has you know a very large llc publication requirement which makes it a lot more expensive initially than a corporation so you know it depends on where you are on the scale if you're making millions of dollars and it doesn't matter a couple extra thousand here or there then it doesn't matter but if you're making a couple hundred bucks a couple thousand bucks does matter yes california is not
1: not the cheapest place to Yes. To
0: they have their, their tax, yeah, their, their yearly like franchise fee that you have to pay. Yes. Yes. That's where my
1: LLC is in, uh, based in Wyoming. Yes. So do you, um, do you work with, um, with clients around the world or primarily in the U.S.?
0: Yes. Um, definitely around the world, around the country. Do a lot of international trademarks and, you know, definitely, see the global stuff as i do i said i do a lot of visas so we have you know foreign clients that we help you know whether it's players or you know i do a lot of musicians and djs that are coming over to the us to perform and yeah yeah I have, So I,
1: w- I want to t- i want to talk about immigration law in DK in just a second so yeah we'll, we will we will definitely
0: go through. yeah so definitely work all over the world and you know north america and you know i am of counsel that speak other languages so i'm able to help you know spanish-speaking clients japanese-speaking clients and Really, because as you know, esports is such a global industry, you need to be able to service multiple markets to really be efficient. Yes. So, can you talk about where where do you
1: advise people to find an attorney, and when they're looking for an attorney, what should they be
0: asking? I mean, finding an attorney is you know that's an interesting thing. I think that people just Google some stuff, and I don't know if Google is the best reference for anything, but it's probably a good starting point. I think ultimately the best clients usually come from other, you know, referrals, people that are using them. And, you know, one of these things where it's like, when you're talking to an attorney, you have to get an idea of how they operate, you know, what, who, and who they are, because everyone is different. Everyone's, you know, cadence is different. Their vibe is different. The way they talk, the way they interact is different. And then sometimes their price structuring is different. And I think, you know, there's a lot of, you know, misconceptions, maybe, you know, it's, you know, the movies and T V really help, you know, bring some of these stereotypes about lawyers, you know, you guys and, you know, not everything is, you know, million dollars or thousands of dollars to do things. I think that, you know, sometimes people, you know, get shy or like, oh well, getting a lawyer is gonna cost so much money and and it's like, no, not necessarily. It really depends on what you're trying to do and, you know, what you know, what the lawyer is. If you're going to, you know, an Am Law fifty that you know, I charge $850 an hour. Yeah. You're going to be spending a lot of money on whatever you're doing, but that's not every lawyer. And, you know, I try to say it's like certain people like myself and others are able to be a little bit more budget conscious. They see the value of providing what they do and they'll agree that everyone deserves to get compensated for their time because, you know, why shouldn't, you know, Like if you're providing a service, that's, you know, the laws of humanity, right? Like, you do something, you get paid for it, and that's what it is. But, you know, it's not costing thousands of dollars or, you know, the kind of numbers that people imagine in their head because they don't know. So I think it's always important to know that stuff in advance, and to vibe with people. You know, I think asking some of the people they're working with the kind of work that they do, like, you might not necessarily be able to say all the clients you have because you know there's certain confidentiality stuff but if you're able to talk in generalities like oh well i'm working with players that are in these kind of games or they're assigned to these kind of things and you're able to kind of show a little bit talk to talk a little bit i think that's a huge indicator but if someone really can't talk about concrete stuff that they're doing and you know have other people kind of vouching for them becomes you know a much more uphill battle so i think the biggest thing when you're you know talking to any attorney vetting them is to kind of you know speak to them understand how they price things how they operate and kind of the kind of people they're working with because and obviously if you know other people that have worked with them i think that's always a great kind of oh well you know i know you've been working with him what do you think about him and people will be honest like you know, as you started this, you're like, Why are you like you like talking to lawyers. That's not usually the response that a lot of people have. It's like, oh, the lawyer's on the phone, but that's not what Justin calls usually. You know, it's like, oh, Justin's calling. What's going on? Is usually
1: how it's answered. So the, you you mentioned uh, one of the misconceptions may be that it costs a lot of money to have an attorney. Are there other misconceptions that people have? I mean, I think a lot
0: of it has to go with, you know, the cost and then the benefit of what can you actually do? It's like, oh, well, you're giving me this agreement. I'm like there's, they just, you know, like oh, I got the, i negotiated the fee. Like what else matters beyond what they're going to pay me? But yeah, the beyond you pay you is great. And if you already have that negotiated and you agreed on it, that's a great starting point. Because if you don't agree on that, you're never going to have a deal anyway. But there's so many other components that have an impact might not have an impact now, but have a long term thing. Like I was doing a deal for a stream where it was like a one off stream paid kind of thing and they had to not compete for six months in like any category. And it was just like, hey guys, like I know it's a one off thing, but this literally makes no sense. Like for him to do a one time thing to be boxed out for six months, it there's just no rhyme or reason for this. And they're like, Oh yeah, you're right, took it right out, like this kept it moving. Did that make him any more money? I don't know, but would it have stopped him from getting another deal next month or next two months if somebody, certainly, you know, so it's like, maybe that didn't give you an extra 500 bucks or a thousand dollars on your deal, but it could have saved you some, you know, might've enabled you to make two other deals two months later that you wouldn't have been able to do if I didn't make that change or insist, you know, so it's like, there's some benefit. And I think that's always kind of what I say is like, you're always going to get your value for your money with me, because whether you realize that now, there's going to be a time when, like, all oh, the fact that you got me the ability to buy out my contract for half rate or something, let me move to a new team, because you know, a lot of these times you're signing to a team, or're signing to a new relationship. it's going to be great, and I'm so excited. Duh, 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 duh. And you know, as we know with this industry and really all businesses in general, you never know. Like, you have the three superstar Rocket League players, and we're so excited to play with each other. And, you know, the first two matches don't go that well. Then the third match, you're getting creams, and you guys start yelling at each other. And, you know, oh, I will not want to be on the player with this team. And just things start getting messy when two of the players are like, oh, get rid of the third one, or we're going to leave. Let me tell you, this conversation happens a lot more than it should. And then it's like, oh, well, we could just drop you whatever we want. Well, thank God Justin got me an early termination bonus so they have to pay me two months' salary to drop me early. Or, you know, something you never, ever imagine is going to matter because there's no way they're going to drop me early. They love me. Like, we're going to be, you know, to the moon and the stars. But you know what? That's not always the case. And again, that didn't get you more money, but in theory, you would have gotten a no buyout if you didn't try to get that in there or try to, you know, push it up from one month to two months or something.
1: That's one of the benefits that I have always found, personally, about working with an attorney is that they're always looking at the end game. It's like, because it, it, when you go into something new, it's like, it's all, you know, unicorns and roses. It's like, oh, no, this is going to be, this is going to be the perfect thing for me and them and everything. And a, an attorney, what I found is like, Okay, what if it doesn't? It's like then how do we all get get out of this so that it works well for everyone? It's like you're going in, you don't want to think of those things, but an attorney, a good attorney, is gonna is gonna make you think of those things.
0: Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where you hope you think about it, and you never have to deal with it, but if you didn't deal with it, you're like, oh no, like like we should have pushed harder on the buyout, or like you know we should have made sure that the no trade clause included you know Europe. Or just not Asia. We're like we, they just can't trade you to Germany, and you just have to go because you have no choice. Yes,
1: yes. And what I also hear you saying, just the things you're describing, is there's a real advantage to having an attorney that is has been in the business instead of like going with your uncle who's an attorney in the in the family, and it's like oh no, well we'll just use him sort of thing. It's like no, it's like there's there's an advantage uh to using someone that has has that kind of experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing that comes with these more, you know, siloed industries, sports, music, fashion, you know, video games, where it's like you are focused and you understand the nuances and kind of how things play out in real life. Well, yeah, just because you're a business lawyer and you know how to negotiate an agreement, it doesn't mean you understand how to to do a record deal or the way you would engage with, you know, if you're a brand size. There's this game developer I work with and, you know, one of the partners is a corporate lawyer and like. We were talking to all these agents and like his approach was just, I was like, man, like this is not how you deal with these kind of people. Like we need to structure to what they find valuable. And what they find valuable is being able to have more power over the IP, to be able to use your game how they want. And that's the thing that we should be selling to them. The ability to be more involved from that perspective. And, you know, not how much, what the valuation is going to get and how much money they're going to make on their return. Like, like, that's not the approach we got to take with them. And, you know, being able to understand, okay, well, we're talking to a record label. They, like, they, they want you to license their music to use in the game. Like, that's what they do. They sell music for the game, but like, you don't want to pay for their music to be in the game. It's not going to value, it doesn't add any value to your game. So you have to, Think about what else is valuable to them. You know, doing these digital concerts is valuable. Like, you know, doing giveaways of a new track is that. So it's like understanding that specific industry as opposed to just how to negotiate a deal or, you know, how to copyright something.
1: Yes. Yes. We're going to talk here a little bit about immigration law because I've heard you talk recently about, about it in more detail and in our audiences around the world. And one of the things that we find, uh, in talking with some people, it's like, well, you know, it's, it's, really tough to have, um, um, world events in the U S because it's really tough to get short-term, you know, visas for players to come here. Could you talk a little bit about, um, about people, I, I want to kind of divide this up a little bit, talk about people who are interested in coming here to work and then come and then the people who would be coming here to play in an event,
0: could you talk about people who want to come here to work? What what's the process look like? So yeah, so you know, you kind of, in order to come to the U.S. or you know, to be to work in a country that you're not a citizen of, you generally need a visa or you know, work authorization. So U.S. happens to have some of the you know more elaborate and costly kind of visa procedures. Obviously, a lot of people want to come here to work, and it's kind of a way to almost act as a barrier for, it's like, okay, well, if you're going to come here, there has to be a real reason for you to come here. And, you know, to come here full-time to work for another company, you have a much more, you know, visa kind of sponsorship process where, you know, you apply and this company sponsors you essentially, where they have, you know, this is a contract of employment, you're coming over here to work on behalf of them. So as long as you're working on behalf of them, you could kind of stay in here and work and, be a you know a working and earn income here where otherwise you wouldn't be able to come to the u.s and receive you know a wage or any kind of payment from a company so what's you know unique and kind of fits into more of the entertainment and esports world is the individuals who be coming to compete for an event or a league or on behalf of a team aren't necessarily coming here to work permanently for a company they may be just be coming for the halo championships in dallas coming for that week and then going back to Germany or Sweden or, you know, wherever else they're from. So in those cases, again, in order to compete for prize money, to receive a salary from your team, to do a paid sponsorship appearance, a media appearance, where you're getting paid a fee to perform work, you need, you know, a work authorization or a visa. So for these instances, these are more temporary ones because you're not, kind of looking to work here indefinitely so they have what are called o1 and p1 visas o1 are you know a lot more rare they're for more extraordinary talent people who you know have won grammys or oscars like people that everyone knows who jay-z is jay-z winning you know, being nominated for grammys and having you know multi-platinum tracks he qualifies for an o1 visas you know bono you know the het singer singer U too he qualifies for an o1 visa because he's you know, number one on how many billboard charts. Whereas there aren't really that many people like that in esports. Maybe you would say a a faker or a burgenson, you know, but other than a few select people, most people don't have that extraordinary recognition where just the basis on their achievements alone they qualify. So alternatively there exists this P one visa that's more for internationally recognized athletes, which is where a lot of the more traditional gamers have kind of come under. And because it's meant for more traditional athletes, the structuring of the criteria that you have to satisfy in order to achieve the bees and to receive it, it doesn't really fit and align properly. You have to really stretch the kind of evidence that you have in order to try to make it fit. And then there's just certain situations, which is, you know, kind of the panel that you talked about where you just don't have certain components in it because that particular game doesn't really operate that way. You know, if you think about Evo that just happened recently, there were thousands of competitors. However, many of those people aren't signed to an organization or have a sponsor and someone that's paying them to come here. They're just going to compete and hopefully win. So they really wouldn't be eligible for one of these visas because they'd be missing one of these criteria, which is like a sponsoring entity. Where if you think of you know a major league baseball player or an NBA player coming over from another country, they're signing to the Dallas Mavericks or the you know Chicago Bulls, the Yankees. So there's a sponsoring team. That's why they're coming over to compete here. So for the players that maybe are inside an organization, this hurdle you know is problematic. And then where I kind of encountered it was some of these tournaments, especially in Fortnite, they have their really big events online. Where people are just competing from all over the world for these huge prize pools, but it's all online. So some talent have been, you know, wanted to maybe relocate to other, you know, regions that, you know, the ping or their latency is a little bit better. Yes. But again, because they're not tied to organizations or, you know, satisfy some of criteria, they weren't able to. They were not in the position to do so. So there are hurdles in it. And I think. That is why it takes individuals that really understand the space to try to help navigate through them and anticipate what the problems are so you can try to get ahead of them. and be like, Okay, well, we're definitely going to need this letter of recommendation and it takes a little bit of time to get. So you just start getting it now. <laughs> yes, yes. A little pre-planning
1: goes a long way here. You know, when you're talking about this, one of the things that just came to mind was so, if someone does come to Evo, and you know, and obviously they have some sort of visa, or they wouldn't be in the U.S. to begin with, and so if they have a travel visa or you know, whatever the the category of visa is that is not a an O or a P that you have been talking about, are they able to win money on that kind of
0: visa? Because because the distinction I hear you making is whether they're earning money or not. Not really, like. I don't think Sony you know who, which you know which is what owns Evo now will be able to pay them like if the winner happened to have been you know a non US citizen that didn't get the proper authorization to come here they're not getting that money like they're going to be in violation of status because you literally kind of you know falsed your immigration status you said you were coming here for a tourist thing you didn't say you were coming here to compete in a tournament and this is what your profession is and you're going to win prize but like you know it's it's not the move to do. It's not a situation that you probably want to have, but it could have repercussions on your potential ability to come back, you know, to the U S another time. And again, Sony is not paying you, but <laughs> right. like you, you were not allowed to pay you. Then they would be in violation by paying someone who was not allowed to, you know, receive it in the first place. So it's, Definitely not advisable. And then the big problem is, I think the big hurdle is it's a costly process. You know, to hire an attorney, the filing fees alone. And if you need it in a time sensitive fashion, the expedited fee kind of doubles it. But the alternative is, as you mentioned, not competing at all or being in the position where you're really not supposed to be here. And even if you compete and do well, you're not going to be able to get your winnings so what's the point of competing competing is fun we get it but the repercussions of you know potentially having immigration be like, okay well you came in here unauthorized we have evidence that you came in second place and won twenty thousand dollars like you didn't have authorization to do that like you're not coming back in or like you have to get a waiver which is like more expensive you know like another piece of paper which is another like so it's like you're now essentially doubling or tripling your costs, so it's it's definitely something that you hope people would avoid and understand that. And if you look at the rules for these, you know, without even looking at the tournament rules, I know for sure that it says you have to proper authorization, and we're not going to pay you if you don't and you can't. So it's like without even looking at it, I know it says it. So, you know, the rules that they have, have really good attorneys. Exactly. So the rules that you sign up pretty much say, well, we're not going to pay you out if you didn't have the authority to get the money.
1: So we're, um, where do people from overseas, where do they get information on all of this? Are there any resources out there that you point
0: people to, to kind of get a, a, a running start? I think, you know, I, add, I would say my book, you know, The the essential Guide to the Business and Law of Esports and Professional Video Gaming is definitely a really great start i it's one of the few and it was probably the first esports business law book that was released and i have a section that looks at immigration and you know employment and kind of different criteria and kind of the stuff that you would need to kind of fulfill some of these elements so you know again it's such a new area it's such a you know constantly evolving one that there really aren't that many resources on about it and you know those who are really doing it like you know, there's certain trade secrets that you want to keep going. So, um, I think that, you know, as we mentioned, um, last week I was involved in, you know, the Esports Trade Association had launched a, you know, a visa consultation letter service where they're able to provide, you know, a paid letter that satisfies one of their criteria for these applications. So this is meant to help an individual that's preparing their visa application to submit it as another piece of evidence. So these are, you know, meant for players or coaches or casters or people that are working in any of these areas to get another, you know, prong on the checklist. Because you have to, in order to get a visa, you have to satisfy a certain list of criteria. So you have to have evidence that satisfies, you know, X, Y, and Z. So this document, this letter becomes a piece of evidence that satisfies a criteria. So... While this isn't necessarily you know a how to visas, it gives you a another you know document or another kind of weapon in your arsenal as you go forward because at the end of the day you want as strong of an application as you can that proves why you should get the visa
1: yes so what um what do you think is the, the the approach or the attitude of the state department and the people who are applying the the visas do they understand um, esports? Do they understand what it is and the value of it? Or is that kind of uh, evolving over time?
0: I think it's definitely you know an evolving thing. You probably, most of the people working there probably think about, you know, video games and Fortnite is what their, you know, son or grandson is playing in their bedroom. And, you know, to think about individuals coming from other countries to compete for, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, like, doesn't like translate to them again it goes back to you know the initial conversation with parents sometimes it's like like what do you mean people are watching other people play video games what do you mean two million people are watching these 16 year olds play video games what do you mean they're competing for 20 million dollars like yes you have tournaments the like the international where literally you wake up and overnight you become a multi-millionaire where each player on the winning team, you know, I think it was two years ago, won three and a half million dollars each. You literally wake up a millionaire. You wake up and by the time you go to sleep, the next day you're a millionaire. That is unbelievable. But that doesn't necessarily permeate all the way up to, you know, immigration officers and, you know, these, some of these civil servants who, you know, they know what the MLB is and they know what the NBA is. So that's, You know, a lot more, it's a lot easier of a process for them. But, you know, hopefully as the next generations continue to get the power and maybe there's some help from, you know, certain congressmen who, women and professionals who see the value in helping facilitate growth here. We've seen, you know, Germany pass a separate visa category for esports and gaming to make it a lot easier for, you know, foreign citizens to get Visa's there in order to, you know, host more events. That's why you see a lot of events happening in Germany to begin with. So hopefully that will be a model that the U S might look at and see the value in.
1: Yeah. That was going to be uh, my next question. It was on, is it the same around the world? So is it the same you're seeing? Okay. It's still, uh, Germany is doing some things, but let's say in, in, in Asia or other parts
0: of, of Europe. Is it uh is it kinda like each country each country is different, yeah, each country is different. I would say that the u s probably has some of the strongest and most stringent rules for non u s citizens There are certain countries that like you know it's not really a process you' supply for it, and you know again, most of the work is incoming where you have individuals from other countries that want to come here and work because their the system is a lot more complicated and You labor intensive than some of the other areas yes yes
1: it it, it, it gets complicated really fast uh and what about the time frame so you're saying people need to plan in advance how far in advance should someone who's who's serious has a serious chance coming to evo next year and earning and winning some money asap should they be
0: looking at As soon as possible, the more lead time, the better chance you have because, you know, first off, you know, there's called an expedited processing fee where you could, you know, pay an extra $2,500 to get your, you know, application through and review within two weeks. But again, it, you know, it's an extra $2,500 and it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to approve. It just means they're going to get back to you and they might issue, you know, a request for evidence where they need additional evidence or they don't understand something, and you know these things kind of happen so as much time as you have the better the more time you give the better opportunity you have and probably the less costly it's going to be because everything is going to have to be rushed and expedited and you might have to change flights and because not only getting the visa once you actually get the visa approved you have to go to the local consulate and have an appointment with in certain countries to actually get the visa to kind of finalize Mm -hmm. What's going on? So as a result of COVID and shutdowns, there's a pretty significant backlog at different countries. So, you know, we've had countries where, you know, they have to fly from Spain to Portugal because the Lisbon office is, you know, less booked than a certain other state or, you know, a certain other city or country. So not only do you have the front end process of dealing with the U.S. immigration, but once that process ends, there's kind of another element that comes to it. That you need to, you know, finalize and bring into the fray. So this is why the more time you have, the better chance you have of making that date and not having to stress or to worry about, you know, oh, I have to change my flight because I didn't get it yet. Or like, so that's why I think as soon as you know when the date is, the better is to get it. Obviously that's not always possible, but just know if you're going on two, three months advance. You're definitely going to have to go the premium route. You're going to be cutting it close on, you know, both ends of everything. And, you know, if you get something and if you get an immigration officer that really doesn't get it and really needs a lot of evidence and maybe when you get the evidence, they want more evidence and it's, you know, you're eventually going to probably get it if you hit the, you know, if you are of the level that you need. But the back and forth where even at premium processing, they have two weeks to get back to you. So two weeks to answer, then they issue an RFA, then you reply, then they have two weeks to review your decision and it's just you know. And they're certainly gonna usually take the full two weeks. So it's you know, you're adding a month or two if you encounter one of these hurdles. And as we mentioned, because it's such a new area, chances are you're gonna encounter something. Yes. And this this is one of the reasons I want to have this conversation because
1: because of our global audience, because for us here, it's like, you know, I'm going to Italy. It's like, I can, I can go to Italy very easily, at least for 90 days, you know, with, with, with nothing, with uh, no visa requirements. And it's something that, you know, so much of the time here in the U S we just don't think of visa requirements as being onerous or uh, impossible to, to acquire. And in so many parts of the country that are uh, the world, that that's just not the case so that's why it's, it's really good i i want to ask you a little bit more about your book because i think that uh, that's something that needs a lot of a lot of publicity out there because it's it's something that it it's the kind of resource that people need um
0: um more information on so why did you write the book i kind of felt like it was really needed i felt that there was definitely a big information void that there was you know the literature out there was just nothing came in from a legal or business perspective It was much more the history of esports, and you know more personal accounts of you know how i built the team or you no know, it didn't really give what you know this is a book that i would have liked to have when i was trying to start where like i know it's a great answer right, right? it was like there's a book like this in the music business you know music world called all you need to know in the music business by donald passman and it's like if you're trying to learn about the music business you buy this book, you read it cover to cover, and you're going to be very knowledgeable. Can you, do you need a lawyer? Certainly. But, you know, it gives you like a resource you go back to Some of you highlight and reread sections. And, you know, it's really ri- written for practitioners and, you know, individuals, managers, agents, artists themselves, not just for a lawyer or, you know, a college student. So I kind of, felt like that was kind of the angle that I wanted and that was kind of what I had created because this is what I wish I had when I was really starting to learn, to figure out, okay, these are different legal angles. This is the kind of stuff. Like this, you know, oh, you need a visa. Okay, what are the kind of evidence that I might need that makes sense? Okay, you know, and start painting the picture a little bit because it really didn't exist. So, Did you write it? I wrote it, Um, so it was 20... It was like through 2019. So it was released, like kind of, you know, beginning of 2020. Yeah, right. Middle of COVID. Yes. Yeah, so
1: it
0: was. <laughs> so it was good. It, it's exciting. It was definitely really nice because it was something that I felt was needed and that there were only so many people that could really speak intelligently at that high level about it and be able to include, you know, information and, you know, sample clauses from some major team and coach and cast their agreements and really kind of pierce the veil a little bit because you couldn't find any of this information yeah and it you know i think that it's important for people to understand hey this is what's going on and look at what's going on here so you probably need a lawyer yes well yeah i mean it certainly weeds people out i mean there are people who
1: um who are more casual and not not really serious about making esports gaming a career or you know, a source of, of income versus uh versus people who do. Last thing I wanted to ask you about, because I noticed that you you pop up in a lot of different places, which which I always keep track of. It's like, okay. And I wanted to ask you, what's your networking strategy? What how do you how do you network? How would you recommend other people to network in a and get
0: good results? I mean, same with like you know, shoot your shots. I feel like some of the best opportunities, networking things, have just been me reaching out to people. Like, you know, it was maybe a week or two, I, I found some, you know, an agent for a talent that I was trying to, you know, work on a project with, and just said, "Hey, I'm Justin. This is what I do. Like, I'd love to speak to you." And what's the worst? They don't answer. They answered. We had a great call. We're meeting for lunch this week, and you know, how onward to victory. So, I mean, I think the biggest thing is putting yourself out there, like you said, trying to be. Um, you know, around other people that you know are doing stuff great, going to conferences and those kind of things—they're good. I think that it there's certain ones that are a little bit more beneficial than others, but ultimately, being around other people that are doing what you're doing, whether it's you know, complimentary or kind of you know, just in the same field, always you know helps. So, you know, LinkedIn and social media is obviously a big thing. I'm I've always been a proponent of pretty much accepting most everyone and you know adding people that might make sense and you get a lot of messages of like oh do you you know this person you're friends and i'm like man we're friends on linkedin <laughs> you know yes but so i think that's really the biggest thing is don't be afraid like no one is gonna be how dare you message me like who do you think you are like i'm the great and powerful odds and if they are you know what more power to them. You know, it's probably not going to be a good conversation anyway. Exactly. It's just what I was saying is like, if they, if they
1: don't pick up on it, because one of the things we find here is what I find anyway is that there, there's givers and there's takers in, in life in general, but it's like, there's, there's people who want to talk to other people and want to help other people and who knows where it might lead down, you know, and not just for, you know, you pay me and I will help you sort of a situation, but you never know where things are going to lead down the road. So. So where can, um, though, I appreciate your time here. Where can people w- learn more about you?
0: Yeah, so, you know, thank you so much for having me. This is amazing. So definitely check out my website, jmjesq.com. and has all my social media links to my book and all the interviews and podcasts and everything I'm doing. Or find me on Twitter, SQ. I'm always on there sharing what I'm working on and what some of the people I'm working on are, so. My DMs are open. Please feel free to, you know, reach out. Same with LinkedIn. I'm always happy to speak to anyone and, you know, see if I should be of assistance.
1: No, we're going to put some links in the in the show notes for people to uh, to do just that. And that's one of the things that we learned here. And certainly, I, I kind of learned it from Reginald, who's who's the producer here of the podcast. Is when we were starting out, when you start out a podcast, how do you get guests for a podcast that doesn't exist? And the way that he got guests is he just asked. And it's just it just just phenomenal. Uh, we we wouldn't be here without him. So um so no, that, that that's great philosophy. So thanks again, Justin. Thanks to everyone for listening to the Gamers Change Lives podcast. Play games, create jobs, change lives. Thanks again, Justin.
0: Thank you. You've just heard the Gamers Change Lives podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and leave a review. And if you haven't subscribed do so right now so that you can stay up to date with episodes as soon as they're uploaded and so you can hit the ground running on changing your esports adventure forever you can also visit us at gamers change lives play games create jobs change lives thanks for listening